0: Father, you are God alone. There is none like you. You are the one true God. And you have given us your Son, Jesus Christ, as you redeemed the nation of Israel and you used a human being by the name of Moses. You have given us true redemption and final redemption through the God-man, Jesus Christ. And by the blood of the Lamb, we are your people. We are saved. And it is by your grace that we live and breathe. And have our being. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. May 7th, 1983, in a room on the grounds of Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio, I stood at the position of attention. I raised my right hand. I looked straight into the eyes of my commander with my wife and two young children nearby, my mother and my father also in the room, and I said, I, Mark Kelly Wood, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely with no mental reservation or purpose of evasion. And that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office upon which I'm about to enter. So help me, God. My country had placed before me a proposition, an opportunity. And I accepted it and I swore my allegiance to my country. I gave my word. I was not drafted. I was not tricked. I was not coerced. I was not seduced. I was a volunteer who had considered somewhat carefully and perhaps somewhat selfishly what would be required of me and what was in it for me standing there that morning before god before my family and before witnesses i was acknowledging my submission i was pledging my full and unconditional obedience to my country to the officers and others that would be placed over me and to a whole host of things that i had no clue about and implied in that profession of obedience with what President Abraham Lincoln called the willingness to give the last full measure of devotion. I was saying that I was willing to die for my country. I was saying that I would do anything that my country asked, any request that she made, even if it meant my life. Now, was my, my obedience Flawless and perfect in my 23 years plus that I served on active duty. <laughs> um, hardly. None of you here knew me in uniform. The lady that uh, spent uh, those 23 plus years with me has been sworn to silence. <laughs> in spite of my failures, in spite of my lack of obedience at times, it did not change my oath. It didn't change what was expected of me by my nation. It was obedience. That I was to strive for. It was obedience that I gave my word to. It's what I pledged. A few thousand years ago. The nation of Israel. But before I took my oath. um, Stood before the mount of God. And they took their own oath. And they, they pledged an oath of allegiance. And submission to the Lord's purpose. As their lawful ruler and sovereign. They were promising their obedience. To the law that was the nation's constitution. For their theocratic state under their great God, Yahweh. They were no longer slaves. They had been redeemed by this great God, Yahweh. They had the option of saying, no thanks. They'd seen God's mighty works. They had tested him in their unbelief and in their grumbling. Yet even in that, they tasted of God's goodness, his mercy, his kindness, his provision. And they made an informed decision. And they said yes to God. Now, did God's people do this perfectly and without flaw? Well, we have the canon of Scripture um, that tells us that over and over and over again they did not. And if we just look at their leader, Moses, second only to Christ, of uh, great leaders, in my opinion, that, uh, for, for one to emulate. F.B. Meyer says this about Moses. A man like other men with great qualities that needed to be developed and improved, but with flaws that veined the pure marble of his character. The nation of Israel, like my oath of allegiance, obedience was what they had pledged. Obedience was the goal. It's what they had said yes to Yahweh, the God of the nation of Israel, the God who had redeemed them. And obedience was what they were to strive for. Now, we gather here this morning as the ecclesia, that is, the local body of Christ, the gathering together of God's people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. The, the English word for that Greek, the church. And those of us who have said yes to God, whether we know it or not, or we think in pictures like that, we have taken an oath of allegiance to our great God, great God Yahweh through His Son, Jesus Christ. And by our faith claim, we have said, Lord, I am willing to obey I'm willing to obey you. I'm willing to do anything that you ask of me. Through the course of this morning, I'm going to come back a few times. And going to just As I look in the mirror, as I ask you to look in the mirror of your life, ask the quest, some of the questions, how, how are we doing with this oath that we gave to our great God? How's our walk? What's our track record? When the Lord asks you, when, not if, when he asks you, sometimes daily, are you willing to do anything that I ask you to do? Does the conversation perhaps sound a little bit more like, well, Lord, sure, you bet, um, uh, boy, it might depend. What do you have in mind? What are you thinking? Can we negotiate? Is there some wiggle room in this? Charles Swindoll, in his book Moses, A Man of Selfless Dedication*, says this, My personal conviction is that our greatest struggle is not in the realm of understanding the will of God. It's in the realm of obeying the God whose will it is. Uh, to be painfully honest, when you look, you and I look back at our lives, we do not find ourselves puzzled and mystified about God's will nearly as much as we find ourselves stubborn and resistant to the one directing our steps. Our problem isn't that we don't know. Our problem is that we do know, but we aren't willing to follow through. And moving to our text this morning, we're going to look at our great God. The God who will go to any length, to redeem his people, even giving his only son. And he does it because he loves us, he cares for us. And he asks in return for our unconditional obedience. He knows we're not going to do it perfectly, but he asks us to obey his voice and to follow his ways. I'm going to end with this question after bed. What would your answer be when God says, will you do anything I ask you to do? Anything. Let's go to Exodus 19, first four verses. The freshly redeemed nation of Israel arrives at the foot of God's mountain. Their leader is going to ascend that mountain and he's going to check in with his big sea commander. The text says In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Their arrival at this place had a meaning for Moses that none but God could understand. God and Moses, I believe. When the Lord first placed the call of leadership upon Moses' shoulders... Moses' response was, who am I? That I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. God responded, I will be with you. And this is the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. I have to believe that Moses had a wow moment with God. The late David Hazen, um, former pastor of this body, um, in a different location, um, and the one entrusted with the vision of starting the ministry that I now head, Coal Valley Christian Schools, when he would see God's hand at work in his life, or in the life of other people, or in the life of this church, he would simply utter the word, Wow. Wow. What else can you say when God's moving? But wow. I have to think that Moses, as he began to ascend the mountain, stopped and turned back. And where there had once been nothing but wasteland, there were now one to two million people that God had just brought out of the nation of Israel, or, uh, of Egypt. And he sees these folks, and in his ears, he hears God's words ringing. Not too many months before, the words that I just read to you. That when you bring them out, you will worship them on this mountain. And they're there. They're there. And maybe with a little mist in his eyes, because he's seen God fulfill a huge, impossible promise. He looks to the top of that mountain, where he's about to go face to face with God. And he says, wow. Wow. You were right, Lord. (laughs) It's not, who am I? It's who are you. It's who you are. And it's the things... That you do. I think it also had to be a wow moment for some among the one to two million Israelites that had just been redeemed by the hand of God. Because some of them were um, serious and committed worshipers of Jehovah. They were witnessing and they were living the promise of God to Abraham. They had had the oral tradition for hundreds of years. They knew God's promise 600 years before to Abraham. And it was being fulfilled. God's covenant with Abraham was being fulfilled in, before their very eyes. In Genesis 12... God says, the Lord said to Abram, leave your country and your people and your father's household and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. God promised Abraham he would do this through a son that Abraham did not yet have and that the offspring of this son um, would be as numerous as the stars in heaven and that these descendants would be strangers in a country not their own, that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But God also promised punishment for the oppressors and redemption for Abraham's descendants. They were making history. It was happening before their eyes right now. Prophecy was being fulfilled. Moses was carrying the bones of Joseph. Moses' ancestors had had made a promise to Joseph when Joseph was on his dying bed. Don't you dare leave my bones in this nation because when God keeps his promise, you take my bones and you carry them with you and you bury me in the land of my fathers. Also, When the Lord spoke to Moses in the bush and said that I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, Moses knew exactly who he was dealing with. Now, he might have been shocked and surprised and taken aback. I think most of us would. A bush starts talking to us, um, that would scare us. But Moses knew who he was dealing with. He'd been taught by his parents about Jehovah about his people's history with Jehovah. In fact, Moses' mother's name, Jochebed, means Jehovah gloried. Moses was no stranger to the promises of God. Hebrew, Hebrews chapter 11, we're told this. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Not fearing the king's anger, he persevered, because he saw him who is invisible. The nation of Israel was making history. It was a history foretold by God. Prophecy coming true. Those serious worshippers of Jehovah had to know this. Exodus 12 says that at the end of 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Egypt. And now three months to the day, after leaving Egypt, they were at the foot of the mountain of God. They were free people. They had never, none of these people had known freedom. They had only known slavery and bondage and cruelty and mistreatment. And they were free. And they were about to enter into a new covenant with God at the foot of this mountain. And some of them knew that they were serving a God that keeps his promises. We serve a God who keeps his promises. They arrived. Moses had fulfilled the extent of his orders from God, so he ascends the mountain. And one commentator said that that Moses sensed, Moses somehow knew that God wanted to see him. We don't have that in the text here, but I believe it fits the context, and it makes sense to me. Moses had done what God had asked him, and now he needed to know what was next. Moses enters into the presence of God, And God speaks. As I studied this part of the passage, my thoughts really had to go military. You've got to at least understand and accept the fact that I spent almost all of my adult life in the military. Um, Anyone else in here have served your country for some part of time? You've taken a similar oath to the one that I took. So you know what I'm talking about. Um, You can see some words up here in a minute that uh, entering into the presence of a superior is a pretty big deal in the military. And it's done in a certain way. And the words the commander wants to see you can send shivers up and then back down your spine, down to your toes. These words conjure up both good and bad memories for me because I have been the one reporting to the commander for some silly thing I had done. But I'd also been the the commander to whom others had reported. And when you enter the presence of the commander, you don't stroll in. You don't flop in a chair, put your leg over the arm, and look whoever's sitting behind the desk and say, What's up, big guy? <laughs> and again, I, I didn't do this for the ladies. Um, you know, I could say, What's up, big gal? But I just, it just didn't sound quite right as I practiced this. <laughs> now, in the military, if you do something like I've just said, you will only do it one time. <laughs> I guarantee you, it won't happen again. You won't be wearing a uniform, that's for sure, if you, if you do try to do it again. The point is, is, you enter in when you're invited. You enter in a certain way, and you stand. And sometimes it's more formal or less formal. And in a more formal scenario, you rep- you're in, you're at attention, you're saluting, Sir, ma'am, Major Wood reports, is ordered. Sometimes it's less formal. Now, although it's military protocol, it is, in my opinion, with some minor adjustments and a little less formality, I think it's just common courtesy. when you enter into the presence of, so, of a superior, not a superior human being, a military into someone's superior rank, an elder. in fact, this morning, um, before first service, there was a gentleman who is my elder, um, came over to shake my hand, and I sat on my duff in a blue chair and didn't get up. And God wouldn't let me forget it. So a couple minutes later, I went over and I apologized. He didn't, you know, he didn't, oh, it's okay. It was a big deal to me because I've been raised better. I've been trained, but my mama would not have been happy with me. My dad either. Searching through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, as well as reading the thoughts of many godly writers on the subject of Moses, I concluded that Moses entered into the presence of God in one of two ways. Now, first and contrary to everything I've just said, um, we'll come back to that. Moses would burst into the presence of God, angry, upset, frustrated, almost always with the people that He had been called to lead. It can be pretty tough to lead sometimes. and he would pour out his heart to God. And I could find nowhere in Scripture in what I've just mentioned or anywhere in the canon of Scripture, where God said something like this: "What do you want now, Sergeant Weiner?" What are you doing in my presence? I don't have time for your trivial and petty concerns and heartaches. Get out of here. Get back to work. Never. That's not the God that we serve. That's not the God that, 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 that gave us his only son. I think it's more like this. I think as Moses went in and he poured out his heart and his pain to God, that God comes, came alongside Moses. This is the picture I have. Puts his arm around Moses' shoulder and squeezes him perhaps just a little bit and looks him in the eye and says, Son... You're doing a great job. I love you. Nothing that's happening caught me off guard. It's gone exactly the way I knew it would go. You're doing fine. Don't be afraid. Don't be worried. Don't be anxious. You just continue to let me work in you, through you, and around you. And oh, by the way, Moses, I'm going to tell you what. Because I know you've got a little, just a, a wee bit tad of a temper. I'm going to give you a little bit of a preview here. I've got some more orders for you. You're going to go to Pharaoh, and you're going to say this. And Pharaoh is going to say this, and he's going to do this. So I'm just giving you a preview so in advance you can be thinking about it, praying about it, so you don't overreact. Now, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, Moses, don't you be afraid. I'm with you. Don't you ever forget that I am with you. Now go on. And Moses went, and he did everything God commanded him to do, In the manner in which God commanded him to do it, in the timing in which God commanded him to do it, all but once. But that's another story for another day. Most of the time, however, Moses entered into the presence of God in the manner in which I described a troop entering the presence of the commander. He knew God wanted to see him, so he'd been invited in. Um, I'm assuming he stood. He listened. And then he spoke. He spoke. And in the passage of Scripture we're in today, he didn't even speak back to God at this point. He listened to God, he did an about-face, he went down the hill, and he carried out the orders that he'd been given. Moses entered in, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob. This is what you are to tell the people of Israel. The Lord instructs Moses to review a few things with the people, reminding them that they have seen with their own eyes what God has done to the Egyptians who had treated them so cruelly for so long. How God had been the one to bring them out and to sustain them. Miracle by miracle. Doing things that only God could do. And that man's finite brain, I'm certain, had some trouble comprehending the miracles that God did before their eyes and did for them. He plucked them from their bondage in Egypt and he carried them to himself. And the metaphor the Lord uses in describing this in the original Hebrew language, translated word for word, says, I bore you. On, eagles, on wings of eagles. Now I'm going to pause for a minute and take a small eagle trail, rather than a rabbit trail, because the eagle took it. Um, perhaps you've heard the cute little story um, about how eagles teach their young how to fly. Mama kicks Junior out of the nest, and they go falling, screaming, hundreds of feet down into the chasm. Mama swoops down, and when it looks like Junior just isn't going to figure it out and fly. Mama flies underneath, catches... The baby eagle flies it back up to the nest, plops it in there, and then we start to process all over again. Um, I've heard the story. Um, when I began my research uh, for the, for the, uh, on this topic, I, I went to the Internet and went to some different sermons and was reading sermons on this, this story. And it's, it's told to greater uh, or lesser degrees by a lot of folks that have taught. It's a neat story. I found it in my wife's Bible. She has a sidebar in Exodus 19 that tells this story. Some very reliable commentaries allude to this story. And then some other publications, uh, more frequent and closer to home, um, tell the story as well. The problem is, it's not true. It's a myth. Um, In researching to to make sure that I was bringing truth, I saw the sermon, saw what some theologians had to say, then I went to some scientific sources on the web and to other places, and I also personally interviewed two wildlife biologists, people degreed in this, people working at the Idaho Fish and Game who work in God's creation and who know, which should know whether they can confirm or deny what I had learned. And they, they confirmed. Um, raptors in general, and eagles in particular, never, ever, ever carry their young on their back, not even in teaching them how to fly if teaching is the right word. Um, it's a myth. A matter of observable scientific fact of God's creation. What really ha- happens is, is that mom and dad, Eagle, share in the, in the upbringing responsibility. They drop food into the nest for, oh, seven, eight, nine, ten weeks. So Junior has take-in service. But somewhere along the line, when it's time for Junior to learn how to fly, they put a chain and lock padlock the refrigerator. And they, be, in essence, begin to starve the baby eagle. The baby eagle loses weight, gets down to a flyable weight, gets rid of the baby fat, feathers sprout. They begin to, 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 to put their wings out, and they begin to float on the air currents. Now, even float and maybe even fly or glide around the nest, but they're always in safe distance of diving back into the nest. And then to get Junior to take that final dive to learn how to fly, what mom and dad will do sometimes is they'll take a fresh kill, they'll fly upwind, so junior smells dinner cooking, and, and then junior will take the leap. Somewhere between 10 and 13 weeks, that's how a baby eagle learns how to fly. They just do it. They jump out of the nest, and they learn how to fly. One source reports, however, only 40% of eagles, that that 40% of young eagles do not survive this first flight. Now... I've belabored this point, and I've done it for a reason. And uh, author Oz Guinness, uh, one of his books is Fit Bodies, Fat Minds. Um, Let me quote from him why I have belabored, belabored this point. Anti intellectualism is a disposition to discount the importance of truth and the life of the mind. Living in a sensuous culture and an increasingly emotional democracy, American evangelicals in the last generation have simultaneously toned up their bodies and dumbed down their minds. The result, many suffer from a modern form of what ancient Stoics called mental hedonism, having fit bodies but fat minds. We must take great care and diligence as we study God's word, as we study his created world. A watching world must not see that faith in God is, as Francis Schaeffer says, a two-story realm of truth. That faith is up here. And in the, the culture we live in today, we have, it's been termed a whatever generation. Whatever. Whatever's good for you is good for you. Whatever's good for me is good for me. God is either God, and what he says is true, or it's not. I mean, we hold that faith to be true. And then down here in the lower story is fact, science. What, what others would call truth, observable reality. And what happens, again, in a whatever culture, when you do not have a biblical worldview is these two become separate and they're not separate because we serve a God of truth and these two wildlife biologists when I interviewed and they're my brothers and sisters they view the world from a Christian perspective a biblical perspective when they they heard this eagle myth taught from their own pulpit about a month before I interviewed them and they couldn't believe their ears they knew better their education their training their field experience they knew better is said this cannot be what the Bible is teaching, because if it is, it's not true. It's not true. We hurt the cause of Christ when we fail to do our homework, when we fail to study diligently. Acts 17. Paul brought a different message to the Jews, and they heard him eagerly, and then they diligently studied the Scripture to see if what Paul said was true. We must be good Bereans. Charles Spurgeon is credited with saying, the gospel, that is God's truth, is like a caged lion. It doesn't need to be defended, it just needs to be let out of the cage. Now, before I move on, we as a body of Christ called Cole Community Church have a magnificent resource here. On the other side of that wall right there, a church library that is the envy of this valley. There are resources in there that will help open up God's Word to you in some magnificent ways. and God's created world, as well as some entertainment. What a great resource. Stop by and thank those volunteers that work in there, please. One more thought on eagles before I share what I think to be the point of the metaphor. I'll drive it home. The Hebrew word for eagle can also mean vulture or specifically a griffon vulture. Um, I can't say with a high degree of certainty, that's a pretty ugly bird. Up there, but I will choose the eagle over the vulture for no other reason than appearance. But my limited research, just being able to pick up a couple of books in a dictionary, um, um, vultures are scavengers. Um, and uh, eagles are hunters, predators, top of the airborne food chain. So I think the point of the passage, what God intends when He speaks metaphorically on eagle's wings, is said by a man by the name of Teal. Above all other birds, it is the soaring eagle with its size and weight that gives the most abiding impression of power and purpose in the air. It advances solidly like a great ship, cleaving the swells and thrusting aside the smaller waves. It sails directly where lesser birds are rocked and tilted by the air currents. The nation of Israel, were lesser birds. We are lesser birds. And our great God exercises power and purpose wherever, whenever, however he pleases. And he is not rocked or tilted by the air currents. He opens doors no one can shut. And he shuts doors no one can open. He redeemed the nation of Israel from bondage. He took them through the Red Sea. He brought them to himself. He brings us to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Yahweh does, did and does all of the work. God does all of the work. We contribute nothing. We simply listen, believe. And obey. We do this because we love him. The Lord went to a whole lot of trouble to bring the nation of Israel to himself. And he was about to tell them why. And I get the picture from verses 5 and 6. That the Lord says, I did this. You saw what I did to, Israel, or to, to Egypt. I carried you as on eagle's wings. And I brought you here to me. Now, please pay attention. Listen to what I have to say to you. And now if you will surely listen to my voice and will keep my covenant, you shall become a special treasure to me above all the nations. For all the earth is mine, and you should become a kingdom of priests for me, a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the sons of Israel. When the Lord says, listen to my voice, he's not saying the same thing that we would say today. Some of your versions may have the word obey rather than listen. Because in, in English, the, 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 the word listen means to pay attention to sound, to hear something with thoughtful attention, give consideration to. And in no way has the follow-up implication... Of any kind of obedience. It's just, I heard a sound. However, the Hebrew text here not only intimates that you hear and you understand, but then the implication is that you do something with what you heard and you understand. You, you consent to, you yield, you obey what it was that you heard. So that listen, as in listen to my voice, and keep, as in keep my covenant, are two very closely related words. And I think they could be summed up by saying, do what I tell you to do. Do what I tell you to do. Now, this could sound bossy. It could sound legalistic. It could sound like it's all about rule keeping. It could sound like God giving us a checklist of do's and don'ts so we're in good with him. It could sound like God's spoiling all of our fun. Nothing could be further from the truth. A Christian survey text of the Old Testament commenting on the Pentateuch's emphasis on God's sovereign grace In redemption says it like this. The only proper human response to God's grace and love is personal sanctity. This sovereign God is supreme in his moral character. When he draws his people to himself, he invites them to imitate his character. He brought Israel out of Egypt and made them his own people. But he expected their new relationship with him to alter their conduct forever. Holiness is the human appropriation of God's grace. God's grace is always followed by law. God is never content to be in relationship with his people if they're making no effort to imitate his character. So law is not intended to restrict life, but to instruct God's people in the paths of righteousness. Law plays a dominant role in the Pentateuch, but it never serves as offense to enslave God's people. Instead, his law protects them from their own self-destructive actions, and a means of grace makes them more like him, It's not legalism, it's love. It's not restrictive, it's actually quite freeing. It's not bondage to a slave master, either to Egypt or before we came to Christ, our bondage to sin. It is voluntary service to a father who knows best. Christ himself said that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. When asked which commandment was the greatest, he said... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Christ, toward the end of the Gospel of John, in uh, chapter 14, says it's about love. And what flows from love is obedience. If you love me, you will keep my commands. He who keeps my commands loves me. If you love me, keep my word. If you don't love me, you won't keep my word. And in the last verse of that chapter, he sets the example. I, so the world knows, that I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Moses delivered God's words to the people. And the people all responded together. We will do everything that the Lord has said. They would repeat these words again and again. Many of them would live as if they never spoke these words. James puts it pretty bluntly. James chapter 1. Don't fool yourself into thinking you're a listener when you're anything but, letting the word go in one ear and out the other. Act on what you hear. Those who hear and don't act on it are like those who glance in the mirror Walk away, and two minutes later, they have no idea who they are. Don't remember what they look like. But whoever catches a glimpse of the revealed counsel of God, the free life, even out of the corner of his eye and sticks with it, is no distracted scatterbrain, but a man or woman of action. That person will find delight and affirmation in the action. All right. We've turned on the final approach. Landing gears down. Starting to put in flaps. Um, But before I land this airplane, I have a question that will lead to a final question. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, how committed are you to being just like the rabbi, the teacher, Messiah? Now implied in that question is the assumption that time spent in spiritual disciplines is how we learn to be like him. As I look in the mirror... How am I doing? What gets my time? What gets my resources? Where does my mind spend most of its time? What has my heart? Pastor Chuck Swindoll has some some thoughts that will help me conclude this message. And he breaks them into three bite-sized chunks. Let me read you what he says and then comment briefly. He says, I am deeply concerned over the shallowness of our spiritual walk in the American church today. Spiritual depth is rare in these landmark days at the turn of the millennium. Our time with God might as, well, might as well depend on a flip of a coin. Heads I do, tails I don't. If I feel like it, great. If I don't, well, he's a God of grace and he understands. Frankly, I do not find such accommodating nonsense in Scripture. Certainly not in a passage like Exodus 19. Now, Pastor Swindoll's comments are not meant for us to hang our head in shame. They are not meant as the hard rebuke that it may feel or sound like initially he's a pastor he's a shepherd many of you've heard him many of you've read his work you know his heart he's trying to motivate us He's trying to motivate us to action to get into the presence of our god to listen to god therefore to be able to obey our god out of love not out of rule keeping I have a friend who was motivated in such a way, and he began taking time in the morning to spend with the Lord in his home office. And he told me within a day or two, his whole attitude had changed, his whole outlook on everything, his work, his marriage had changed. He was beginning to become a different man. It's kind of amazing what happens when we sit at the feet of Jesus and we listen. But God had another little piece of, of, of uh, surprise for him. Um, as he sat there one morning early on and developed the development of this habit of being in God's word and listening to the Lord, his seven-year-old daughter trotted down the steps into his home study and plopped herself onto his, the love seat that's in there not too far from him and lay there for just a few minutes. She got up, she ran back up the stairs, she trotted back down the stairs. She sat on the, the love seat. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw what had happened. His daughter had gone upstairs and gotten her children's Bible come back down the stairs, was sitting on the love seat and reading her Bible. She was imitating her father as he was spending time with his father. There is no better way to encourage the young to love and serve God than to model such behaviors. We're commanded to do this in Scripture throughout. As, as, as old folk, it's better caught than taught. We're supposed to model such things. And it helps. Such behaviors help us to deepen our relationship with the Lord and strengthen our walk with Him. And my friend, I, these aren't the words he used, but I know it's what his heart felt. Wow. Wow. Pastor Swindoll continues. He gives advice regarding quiet time with the Lord. When you sit at your desk, silently pray, Lord, I am willing to obey you. I'm not. I'm here not to play games but to invest at least 30 solid minutes listening to your voice. I want to be sensitive. I don't care if anybody else knows I'm here. I just want to hear what you're saying and your word. We're called to be the nation of Israel, sitting at the, at the foot of God, at the mountain of God, hearing his voice. We're, we're called to be Martha, or excuse me, Mary, Martha's sister, sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And as we do, we're going to be able to hear God's voice. We're going to be able to hear his leading. And Pastor Swindoll finishes here. He says, I want to live my life so eternally committed to my Savior and so available and free to him that all it takes is a whisper from heaven. And I am obeying. Are you willing to do anything God asks you to do? In 1999, Janet and I uh, had God ask us that question. The whole story is pretty long and drawn out and would probably put you to sleep. But he was asking us to leave the United States Air Force. It was all we had known as a couple for 23 years. She had never seen me in any other line of work but that of a United States Air Force enlisted man or officer. He asked, will you give up a promotion? Would you give up war college? Would you give up an assignment to the Pentagon? We you give up the safety and the security and the love that you have for this armed force that you serve? And it was a struggle. Moses' quibble was nothing. Um, as He quibbled with God at the bush. Obeying God is not easy. I'm not here to say it is. The longer version, uh, I could bear that out. But the fact that my wife and I are in this, under this roof today is testimony in a big way. When God says, "We do anything I ask you to do? It's saying yes. It's okay. We were provided for. We love it. We're here and we're serving. And we've not faltered. We've not, he, he has always provided for us. He's never caused us harm. been good for us. And today perhaps the Lord is asking you, will you do anything I'm asking you to do? And I think he, he asks that question in some way every day. Could it be about our personal sanctity, our holiness? Is there something in our life? Again, I'm not going to pull out a list. That's between you and God. God knows the life that he wants you to be, the husband or wife he wants you to be, the mom or dad. Are we living for ourselves? Are we living for our Lord and our Savior? Maybe God is calling you into full-time Christian ministry because the harvest is white, the workers are few. God's looking for people who will walk away from careers, from safety, From security, they will get out of the boat. They'll pick up a stone and a sling, and they'll stand before a giant because they serve the Lord their God. Not because of who they are, but because who He is. Maybe God's asking you to speak a word of truth to a brother or a sister. We could call that confrontation. Um, None of us like it, but God never thumps people. We've talked about that. We're not supposed to thump people. We're just supposed to be obedient and faithful, speak into people's lives as God directs us to. And then finally, and lastly, before I pray, church research would indicate that there is a significant percentage of people sitting here this morning that have been here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, five years, ten years, twenty years, and you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You have not entered into a friendship, a relationship with the Lord. It's not about sitting in church. It's not about works. It's about claiming the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for you and for me. Exclamation mark. I almost said period. Exclamation mark. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, your mercy, your kindness, your love. You have redeemed us by the blood of the Lamb, your Son, Jesus Christ. And you are God alone. You brought us here together this morning. You continue to bring us to the foot of your Son, the foot of the cross. May we hear your voice and may we obey your commands, not because it's a list of things to do to be right with you, but because we love you, because you first loved us.